0: All right, we got two sermons left in the book of James. We're going to cover the mer- bulk of the remaining verses today, and then we'll cover the last two verses next week. Um, just to look down the road a little bit, we're going to, after James, we're going to start Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament, which I'm really excited for. Ecclesiastes is a can be a difficult book. Um, it's very different from... Every other book in, in the Bible, uh, but it's also an extremely relevant one for, for our day. Um, you know, you read it and it comes off as very pessimistic, right? The, the first chapter says things like vanity, all is vanity, all of life is weariness, it is an unhappy business that God has given to mankind, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. Um... But as you read it, and you get to the end, and you kind of have to read the whole book in light of the end, and that's kind of a picture of life, is that you have to live life in light of the end. Um, You find that there is purpose, and there is hope. Um, But it's especially uh, just relevant and poignant book if you, like most of us, I think like everybody, finds life to be frustrating. Um, like a striving after the wind, and you're always trying to grasp something, trying to find satisfaction and, and wholeness and fullness, and you you get to wherever that you think that is, and then it's not there, and it eludes you, and you 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 try again, and, and it eludes you, and you're continually just, something's not right. And so Ecclesiastes walks us through like 11 and a half chapters of just this is what life is like. And then at the very end, it and through up, scattered throughout as well, but gives you the big key essentially to, to interpreting that. So excited for that. Uh, my college uh, Sunday school teacher took us through Ecclesiastes and it was just an awesome, really helpful study. So we'll be in that for a little while, it's 12 chapters, um, but today we're in James 5, 13 through 18. And in these final verses of James, we see James giving some final advice, exhortations, commands to his audience, to us. And the essence of this command, these commands is live a God-directed life. Live a life where your, where your trust, your, your love, your thoughts, your, your worship, your cries for help, and then also your praise and thanksgiving is directed towards God. So live all of your life under the reality and the presence of God, who he is and what he's done. So I'm going to read the whole passage here up front, and then we'll walk through that. James 5, starting in verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and earth bore its fruit. So you can kind of break this down into two situations that Christians find themselves in, that all people find themselves in. Uh, Suffering, including sickness, suffering through sickness, and gladness or cheerfulness. So James says, if you you find yourself suffering, here is how you ought to respond in light of who God is and, and what he's done. If you find yourself glad, if things are going well for you in life, likewise, here's how you ought to respond in light of who God is. So we're just going to walk through those those two things, those two situations. So first, suffering. In suffering, James says, pray. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Now, I think it's helpful up front just to consider some of the other ways that we do respond to suffering other than prayer. Um, Or perhaps some of the ways that we immediately give ourselves to, and then eventually we get to prayer, uh, but after we've kind of exhausted this list of things. So some of us try to numb ourselves when we suffer. Uh, We just fill our lives with endless distractions and diversions. We keep ourselves busy, perhaps with good things, family, vacations, experiences, work, even church but all of it ends up being just like a drug to keep ourselves from coming to God with our suffering and from actually engaging with our suffering. Some of us turn to apathy when we suffer. And so we just give up. We give up hope. We give up expectations. We give up on God doing anything or anything good. And we just lower our expectations. We we turn to self-pity. Again, all of which, which keeps us from actually coming to God with our suffering. Some of us turn to anger and bitterness when we suffer. We, we immediately want to find somebody to blame it on, whether or not there's actually blame there. But it helps. We, we think it will help. We think it will be comforting to us if we can direct some anger at someone for our suffering. What does James and God's word say? Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Elsewhere, Philippians, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Jesus in Matthew ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. So the big idea is that God invites us to come to him in prayer, invites us to bring our needs, our sufferings, our sicknesses to him. Over and over again throughout Scripture, he is inviting us and calling us and drawing us to come to him. He desires our prayers. God desires our prayers. He he wants us to come to him. He hears our prayers and he delights to respond to them. I mean, you can think about this. When, When our kids come to us with needs and hurts. We, we invite them to do so. We want them to do so because we want to respond to them. We can't every, always fix everything that they come to us um, wanting us to fix. We can't answer everything. We can't say yes to everything, but we desire them to come to us. And we delight to respond favorably. How much more God, whose heart is much more pure, more loving and more kind than ours. Similarly, when you invite people over to your house, you do it because you actually want them to come over to your house. That's the point of inviting them. So God desires us to come and to bring our needs and our hurts and our questions and our pains before him. James then goes on and gives us encouragement, further encouragement to do this by reminding us that God acts in response to our prayers. So look at verse 16 again. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another, that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. And then he goes on to uh, recount the Old Testament story of Elijah. Um, and he, he says he's a man with a nature like ours. In other words, he's, we can pray just like him. He doesn't have some special powers or, or, or whatnot that we don't. He, has, he is praying to God, and we too can pray to God. He, he is one just like us, and he prays to God fervently for it not to rain um, as, as judgment and correction on idolatrous Israel and, and one of their kings, and God responds and keeps the rain for three and a half years, we're told, and then he prays again for it to rain, and, and it rains. the Bible gives us many such encouragements to expect God to answer when we pray. Ask and you will receive. Seek and you will find. We we are wise to regularly come back to these promises and and to pray with expectation and hope, right? To let let these promises build faith and, and expectation in us. Yet we also know Prayer doesn't work like a slot machine or a gumball machine or whatever machine you put a little quarter in and then you get what you want out of it every time. Well, mostly every time. Sometimes those things break. But prayer doesn't work like that, where we, we just do our part and God must respond exactly as we spe- uh, expect. It doesn't take long living life and praying to realize that prayer isn't a way to control God's every, every move and decision. So right along with the great promises that God gives us in Scripture about expecting things from prayer, expecting God to respond to prayer, we also have these other factors or conditions of prayer to consider. Um, it, It would seem that God would have us pray with both great expectancy and faith and fervency, but also with humility and ultimate trust in God to do what is best. We don't We don't get to use prayer like some formula or mantra or or chant that we can just do and control God. There's a relational nature to it. And so one factor in prayer that we are given is faith or belief. Uh, We see that here, right? The prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. Elsewhere, Jesus says, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. So God responds to faith. He's delighted in faith. Another factor in prayer is obedience to God. Jesus says in John, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. And so he goes on to explain that abiding in him involves obedience, involves turning to him and, and, and following him and bearing fruit through his spirit inside of us. Now, this brings up something that James mentions here. That's And that is the connection between sin and sickness. Uh, In verse 16, James says, Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. So he seems to imply that there are times when suffering or sickness has some connection to sin in our lives. Now we know this is not always the case, as the examples of Job and Paul and even Jesus show us, who experienced much suffering that wasn't the direct result of sin in their lives. But we are always wise to consider if there is a need for repentance, if there is willful disobedience in our lives when we are suffering. And then a third factor in prayer is, of course, God's will, that God is not just this genie or, you know, slot machine God is not this inanimate force that we can just kind of do a little dance or whatever and get him to do what we want. God is, in fact, a relational being with a will. 1 John 5, 14, and this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he he hears us. I mean, you can think about the many prayers that we offer up for the sick and for the, the dying, in our lives. Um, and we we know that things don't always go as we have prayed. Um, the death rate for humanity is still hovering right around 100%, Jesus bringing it down just a little bit. But despite God's mi- miracles and healings and, and savings and all of that, we still die. So what do we do with this? Well, that, that's This is obviously a massive topic, and we don't have time to dive into all the nooks and crannies of it today, but I'll just say this. Physical sickness and pain and discomfort can be used by God as a wake-up call to the much more serious spiritual sickness and suffering in our lives now, and to come in the future if we do not turn and, and come to him. So, even if not a direct result of a specific sin, sickness and and pain and discomfort can be a tool, a means that God uses to get our attention, to awaken us to the fact that we are not in control, that, I mean, as we'll see in Ecclesiastes, that life does not go as we want it to all the time, and that we have great needs. Um, John Piper reflects on this um, in a A recent book that he wrote in response to the coronavirus and kind of just wrestling with how is God, you know, where is God in all of this, Um, and he writes this, physical evil is a parable, a drama, a signpost pointing to the moral outrage of rebellion against God. Why might that be fitting? Because in our present condition, after the fall, blinded by sin, we cannot see or feel how repugnant sin against God is. Hardly anyone in the world feels the horror of preferring other things over God. Who loses any sleep over our daily belittling of God by neglect and defiance? But oh, how we feel our physical pain. How indignant we can become if God touches our bodies. We may not grieve over the way we demean God every day in our hearts, but let the coronavirus come, or whatever it is, and threaten our bodies, and he has our attention. Physical pain It's God's trumpet blast to tell us that something is dreadfully wrong in the world. You see, we tend to have this view that life is about finding all the comfort and pleasure and rest we can right now, and that God owes us this. You can even find many so-called Christian teachers and books that proclaim this, that it's really all about you and God is there to help you when you need him. but God is continually at work, radically reorienting this kind of thinking, which doesn't mean that comfort and pleasure and rest and all of those things don't matter, but God first has to get our attention and to convince us of his greatness and his goodness, and his worth, and his power, and his prominence in the world, to show us that no amount of comfort, and rest, and and pleasure apart from him is worth it. Those are not ends in themselves. Those are not gods to be worshipped. They ultimately have no power. But at the same time, God is at work showing us that when we come to love him, and trust him, and obey him, there is great comfort and rest and pleasure and and joy. We are commanded to rejoice always, beginning now and lasting into eternity. And if that is the case, if that is the ultimate purpose and direction of life, if this is a God-directed world, then whatever it means to, whatever means it takes to get our attention and to direct our hearts towards that, towards Him, even pain and suffering are worth it in the end. So to bring this back to prayer, can God answer all of our prayers? Of course. Can he heal everyone that we pray for and save them and raise them up? Of course. Does God love to respond to our prayers and and to do these things? Of course he does. But must he answer every prayer of ours? Must he save everyone we pray for? He is God. He is bigger than us. His ways are not our ways. It's part of what makes him God. He loves to respond to our prayers, but he isn't bound to our prayers. And this should leave us both confident, because he can and he wills, and he's good, but also humble, because ultimately we trust in him to do what is best. Uh, Much like a, a, a parent's you know, with young child's requests. As parents, we, we are loving to say yes to so many of the things that our kids ask us for, but we are also loving to say no to many of the things that our kids ask us for um, because we can see down the road a little bit more and know that they will harm them or not be good for them. We tend to have more experience and wisdom and, and foresight to, to see these things. And the same is true for God in regards to us. Now, notice the, before we move on from prayer here, notice the role that the church plays as James goes through this in, in prayer. So James begins on the individual level. If you are suffering, if you are suffering, you pray. So you don't need to come to a pastor or elder or priest or or whatnot to, to come before God. You pray. God, if you are one of God's children, God hears you, come to him. He desires your prayers. But then he also brings in the church community. He says, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. Um, this is, prayer is a way that we love one another. It's a way that we enter into what's going on in each other's lives and mourn for one another and suffer with one another and rejoice with one another. As you engage with others in the life of the church, there are always occasions, many occasions for rejoicing sharing in joy and for mourning and entering into suffering and sickness with one another and praying for one another. And then James mentions one other role of prayer within the church. Um, In verse 14, he says, Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him or her, anointing him or her with oil in the name of the Lord. Now, as I said earlier, you don't, you don't need to come to a pastor, elder, priest to have your prayers heard. So, what is going on here? Well, I tend to think this regards a situation of great sickness as the elders are called to come to this individual. Uh, it seems maybe this individual cannot go to, to the elders. And then also, I think there's uh, some of the reasoning for this command has to do with what James says um, Later on, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working, and pastors, elders are among those, though they shouldn't be the only ones, but they are among those who are to exemplify righteous character and and spiritual maturity and knowledge. And so that may be some of the reasoning for this command, Um, but even if we can't fully understand, like, what exactly does does this mean? When are we supposed to do this? I'd say this is an area of trusting God, that this is a good habit, a good practice um, to do. And so many of you, especially in the last year, have come to the elders, have asked, hey, you know, even if over the phone, but often in person, hey, can you come pray for me in this, in this, in what I'm going through, in this sickness and suffering? We we love to do this, happy to do this, uh, but at the same time, hope that there is and and I know there is, much more prayer going on among the church and not just from the elders. And then you have this bit about anointing with oil. There are various views on this. I'll just say briefly that we as the elders don't see any reason to not do this practice, even though we perhaps don't understand all that's involved in it. Uh, We certainly don't think that there's any power in oil in in this sense, of in oil, to, to heal. That's not what it's saying. Um, likely, this is meant to have some symbolic significance, like this is a visual, physical sign of setting aside someone with prayer. Certainly not necessary. There are many other occasions in Scripture where there's no oil used, but um, still, it seems like an act of obedience to, to do this on certain occasions. All right. Spent most of our time unpacking this first part, um, in suffering, pray. And then we have the second part, this other exhortation. We'll spend a little bit of time on that. So the end of verse 13, is anyone cheerful or happy, as some of your translations say, let him sing praise. So we're transitioning here to in times of gladness, in good times, when life is pleasing and sweet, Don't forget God. Don't only come to God. Don't only remember that life is God-directed when you have needs, when you have nowhere else to turn, when you're at the end of your rope. Don't merely use God to get what you want and then forget Him. Acknowledge God as the source of all the good things in your life. See every joy in your life as evidence of His grace. Delight in Him and thank Him and, and praise Him. And likewise, we need this reminder and this command because this isn't how we always or even often respond to good times. Often we respond to good times and to joys and comforts by becoming increasingly prideful and self-sufficient. Look at what I've done. We probably don't ever say that, but it comes into our minds. We feel a little bit more in control we feel like we have some credit for the good in our lives. We feel a little less dependent on God. I'm, I'm doing pretty well here. Don't need to seek God as much. Don't need to, to trust and, and fear God. What is God going to do? Does God care? Does he really see? We are perhaps like a child flying a kite for the first time on a windy day and thinking, well, this is easy. Look what I'm doing. Keeping this thing up in the air, and he goes out the next day, and the wind is gone. Well, guess I can't fly a kite. We tend to get put all of our confidence in ourselves. We think we can control the wind in our our lives. We overestimate our power and ability. And God gives us good things, and we say, "Well, look, look what I've done." Not realizing it that that God. God's hand is behind it all. I imagine you're aware of this tendency in your heart. Um, You know, it's a cycle you see in the Old Testament over and over again where the Israelites cry out to God for help in their need. God comes and rescues them and gives them good things. And they think, whoa, okay, things are going well. Guess we don't need God anymore. And the cycle just continues and continues. and And we see this in our own hearts so God calls us, invites us, and even commands us in our good times, in our rejoicing, in our gladness, in our success, to bring our gladness to him, to let our gladness overflow in thanksgiving to him. Again, this is about living a God-directed life in all times, in our need and suffering and sickness to turn to him in prayer, and then when he responds, and any time he gives us good things, to turn to him in praise and thanksgiving. Now, don't misunderstand the reasoning here. The reason we are called to live a God-directed life isn't just because well, it's good for us, although it is. Isn't just because it works or pays off or we ought to do it. Although those are all true. But the foremost reason we are called to live a God-directed life, to turn our attention and our love and our trust towards God, is because all of life actually is flowing from God, is being directed by God. The underlying implication of all of this is that nothing happens by chance. Nothing happens outside of God's sovereign hand, right? If, if in our suffering we are to turn to Him to help us, if in our experiencing goodness and rejoicing we are to turn to God and acknowledge Him as a source of all of those things, the implication is that He is sovereignly ordaining all things that come our way. He's not just the source of our help sometimes. He's not just the rescuer of our, our needs and the healer of our sicknesses and, and all of this just sometimes sometimes. No, it all comes from his hand. There's no chaos, there's no chance, there's no randomness. Now, if you follow this train of thought and you, you consider this for a while, you, you do reach some difficult difficulties, some, some hard questions about God's involvement with evil and suffering and sin. As Job says, "Shall we receive from God? Shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil?" And then he goes on to say, or we are he, uh, the author of Job goes on to tell us that Job did not sin with his lips. So in saying this, he had an right assessment of God, that, that both good and evil were ultimately being ordained by God, although there are other causes and and reasons for the suffering in our lives. But even though God's sovereignty leaves us with questions that appear unanswerable in this life, it also leaves us with much comfort and much more comfort than any alternative. Because the fact is, we, I mean, whatever our belief in God is, we experience suffering and evil and sin in this life. And neither of these are outside of God's control and we are at the expense of evil forces or randomness or whatever we think we can control. Or they are in God's control in ways that we don't fully understand. They somehow fit into his good purpose, and we can trust him. Refusing to believe that God is sovereign over all things may make God easier to understand, but it doesn't make life easier to live. And one of the qualities of God is not easy to understand. Haven't found that Bible verse yet. Now, the news that God is sovereign is little comfort by itself, if we are honest, because God could be sovereign in evil. God could be sovereign in uncaring. But the refrain of Scripture the, the big idea, the big news of Scripture from beginning to end in so many ways is that God is good. That God is good in, in all things. So surprisingly good, always good. Good as in merciful to sinners. Good as in forgiving to all who come to Him. Good as in gentle and lowly in all of His dealings with us. Good as in with us, faithful to his promises, faithful to his word. Good as in giving of himself to suffer and die for our sins in our place. Good as in working all things together for our good. And good as in preparing an eternal home for us where righteousness and, and joy dwell. Because of this, We are called to live a God-directed life in suffering, to to pray, in in joy and gladness to to give thanks to Him um, because we can trust Him, because we can rest in Him. He can be relied on. Let's pray.